But, but, you know, I think about this, and what about this internet thing? Do you, do you know anything about that? Sure. What, what the hell is that exactly? Well, it's, it's become a place where people are publishing information. Right. So you, everybody can have their own homepage. Companies are there, the latest information. It's wild what's going on. You can send electronic mail to people. Uh, it is the big new thing. Yeah, but you know, I, I is there a different way to do business? Richard Tang thinks there is. That clip you just heard was Bill Gates talking to David Letterman about the internet in 1995. In the same year, Tang founded Zen Internet. Today, Zen has more than £100 million in annual revenues. It is the oldest independent internet service provider in the UK, and it wants to get even bigger. But Tang thinks you should forget about all the usual ways of judging the success of a business. He says it's people first money second. One of his inspirations is the king of Bhutan, and he has promised never to sell his business. I'm Graham Ruddick, and this is Business Studies, a podcast which takes a second look at stories from the past. In this episode, we speak to Richard Tang, the founder and chairman of Zen Internet, and a business leader who wants businesses to think again about their priorities. Zen Internet is one of the largest internet providers for households and businesses in the UK, outside of the big four. That's BT, Sky, TalkTalk Talk, and Virgin. In many ways, it is also exactly the sort of company that the UK needs more of if the economy is to be levelled up outside London. It is a tech company based in northwest England and is the largest employer in the town of Rochdale, Greater Manchester, with more than 550 staff. Its story started in a pub. I was in a pub with my brother Dan and I just asked him, do you think the internet will take off? I'd never used the internet, I'd only just heard about it. But it sounded like an interesting new thing, um, an interesting opportunity. I was um, a contract software developer at the at the time, set up my own business, writing software and... I think I saw it at the time. If, if if you remember back in the 90s, the big boom thing was mobile phones. And I thought, what a brilliant business model. You sell someone a mobile phone and then every month they pay you money and all you've got to do is sort of sit back and drink your cocktails and watch the money flow in. So I thought the that being an internet supplier, it would play to my technical skills, but it would also be the, be, be this great subscription model now of course i was i was in my 20s back then pretty naive and what i soon realized is that you can't just sit back and watch the money rolling you've got to work really hard to continue to provide that service um but yeah going back to the original question about in the pub that's why we were in the pub dan said yes i think it will take off because i've used it at university to do a bit of research and i said you know well do you fancy setting up an internet service provider business and and back then look you could set one up with like a few thousand pounds and open your doors for business and that's exactly what we did uh what did it take to found an internet service provider in 1995 five thousand pounds and lots of hard work so i i'd come back from some traveling a year before with nothing in fact i owed my mom 500 pounds um 
um, a year of writing software, I'd saved up five five grand. And so that was my starting capital. Uh, and it took that and probably about another 20 grand borrowed from mainly from family and friends on the basis that I promised to pay them back whether it worked or not. So I said, look, if this thing all falls to bits, I can write software and I'll pay you back. You know, it might take two or three years. But that's it. And uh, and with that money, we got a small office in Rochdale. We went to Ikea and bought a wooden shelf. And on that shelf, we put six modems, a couple of Linux PCs, a router. We got a connection to the internet, 64 kilobits per second, and um, opened our doors for business. 13th of October, 1995, you know, selling dial-up internet access primarily to technically minded home users so in those days the internet i mean it's so it's difficult to imagine now the internet was really really niche you know it was a geeky techie thing so we advertised in some of the new techie publications back then dot net magazine internet today which were on the shelf in wh smith alongside pc pro and personal computer world and all that sort of stuff so it really was those techie home users that we were were marketing to and there was an explosion around the mid 90s of lots of small internet service providers setting up and doing pretty much what we were doing so did 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 you get like explosive demands straight away was it quite apparent as soon as you were up and running that this this internet thing was was going to expand dramatically Initially, no. Initially, it was more speculative. Will it take off? Will it not take off? A lot of people didn't see the internet as a as a serious thing for anything. Remember, I did one one presentation to some Rochdale businesses, uh, and this was probably about ninety seven, ninety eight. And one of the guys, you know, one of, one of the subjects I covered was was the benefits of using email and how it had advantages over sending a letter, sending a fax or making a phone call. And I remember one guy at the end of the session said, well, that's all very well, but really you're just telling us it's a glorified fax machine. I'm not interested. So, so, and I think that was, that was quite representative of the view of businesses in the nineties of of what the internet was. It, It wasn't really of interest to them. I mean, there were few that got, you know, that started to get websites. So then later in the 90s, it did start to accelerate and it became clearer that this wasn't just a fad, this was going to be a thing. And during that period, I mean, we were a tiny little company. We only had, I think, probably a thousand customers or something like that, or maybe even just a few hundred. But it was a period where there did seem to be exponentially increasing demand and so despite the fact there were a lot of businesses setting up there did seem to be enough to go around for everybody i i read that you were always a bit concerned that one of the big telecoms companies might get hold of the idea and, and sort of enter the market but actually it turned out to be dixon's and freeserve which which changed everything when they emerged in the in the late 90s could you just explain what what that was like and how that changed the market, and then eventually ended up changing Zen completely as a business. Absolutely. When I set up, um, it was a fear from the early days that I always thought it was going to be Microsoft or BT. They they cotton on to the fact that the internet was going to be something. 
and they'd just offer it free for you know two or three years all the little guys would go out of business then they'd have the market to themselves and it was actually Dixon's that did it in the end so that was a surprise so th this was 1998 we'd built up as I say probably about a thousand customers or something like that maybe a bit more and I thought oh no you know my worst nightmares come true because what we're charging 10 pounds a month for is now free from Dixon's through FreeServe and sure enough we started to get phone calls from customers saying, look, we really like your service, but it's free over here and you're charging us £10 a month. Now, what turned out to be potentially an existential threat for our business turned out to be one of the biggest opportunities because we had also started providing services to businesses back then. Um, so not just internet access, but websites, hosting, domain names, things like that. And it was the case that we didn't actually make that much profit on the £10 a month consumers, but we made more margin on the businesses. So FreeServe's move to enter the market actually helped us in two ways. First of all, it forced us to focus on business customers, which were more profitable. But the other thing that it did is that it massively expanded the reach of the internet in the UK. So all of a sudden, there was a whole swathe of people that weren't really up for paying for internet access. But you know what? If it's free, I'm going to give it a try. And of course, once they give it a try, they get to, to like it and use it. And with more consumers using the internet, more businesses see a value of being online so they can sell to those consumers. And those business customers were just the sort of customers that we were serving because FreeServe were, were not giving that free service to businesses. It was just a basic consumer access. So they, it was a real threat that turned into an opportunity for us. And in the following year, so from 98 to 99, we more than doubled our turnover and made our first ever profit. So our turnover doubled to £900,000 from about 400 and something. And we made a profit of £100,000 after like four years of sweat and tears and making absolutely nothing, which was just brilliant. You know, it's absolutely brilliant. Although Zen got through the dot-com boom and bust of the late 1990s and early 2000s, many did not. Other internet businesses and internet service providers went bust or were bought by bigger rivals, including FreeServe itself, which was bought by an arm of France Telecom. However, soon the arrival of broadband to replace dial-up internet drove new growth for Zen, with households and businesses gradually recognising between 2000 and 2010 that access to the internet was an essential utility. Today, Zen has more than 100,000 customers in the UK and wants the big four internet providers to become the big five. It is constantly recognised by industry experts and consumer publications like Which for the quality of its service, but this is a highly competitive industry and the business is battling against big companies. Without a doubt, look, if you're a small business, it, it, it is easier to... to provide a more personalized service, but you can provide a personalized service as a, as a much bigger business. So we're 550 people now, and we're still striving to provide the best personalized service to our customers. And I think that comes from a, a, a purpose, a fundamental purpose of the business that is about people and the environment. You know, we have these three most fundamental long-term 
objectives in priority order, which are happy staff, happy customers, happy suppliers. And whenever I present about this, I say, you know, these three objectives, happy staff, happy customers, happy suppliers, this is the reason we exist as a business. Everything else is subservient. So people are first, money is second. You know, money's critically important and every business needs money to survive and succeed. Every business needs to work hard and people need to stretch themselves to succeed. But we're doing it for the happiness of our staff, customers and suppliers. And more recently, it's been more, more and more about doing it for environmental good as well. And that is really the opposite of so many big businesses, not just in our industry, where the ultimate purpose of the business is to maximize financial return to shareholders. And it's a select few shareholders. And look, these businesses are full of great people who do lots of great things for society and the environment. But ultimately, they're in a system where its ultimate purpose is about shareholder return. And then, you know, it's the whole bad side of capitalism where the select few get very, very rich at the expense of of the many. So I suppose what I've seen over the years in the industry is that despite the big players having all this resource and all this money, they make decisions that are not putting necessarily their staff and customers first, they're putting their profitability first. Obviously, you're, you're an entrepreneur and, you, and you're a successful businessman. So do you, do you consider yourself a capitalist? And I've, I've heard you speak a little bit about this before and say that you do and you, you're happy to take dividends from the business and happy to make a profit, but you just think there are flaws with the existing system. Yeah, am I a capitalist? Well, I, look, I think there's capitalism has a lot going for it and it's the very best model that the human race has found so far of of running a society, of being innovative, of, of driving that society forwards. So there are lots of good things. You know, it does drive competition and survival of the fittest. It pushes people to, to be their best. So all these things are actually really good. We want to keep those. And then there's this bad side of capitalism, which just drives a huge amount of inequality in the world, where it's all about making the select few, the billionaires, the million multi-millionaires, richer and richer and richer at the expense of, of of the vast majority of everyone else and at the expense of the environment. I mean, for me personally, I, I think there's a what capitalism needs to evolve into something that keeps the good bits but gets rid of some of the bad bits. And what I'm trying to do at Zen is create a model for how that will work. So typically someone in my position will build a business over I mean, it's 27 years now. That business will be worth a fair amount of money. They'll sell the business. They'll retire. They'll buy expensive things, yachts, aeroplanes, you know, fast cars, whatever you, whatever you want. And and for me, that that is, yes, people who work hard and build up successful businesses deserve some reward. But do they d- deserve the excesses that some of them get? I don't believe that they do. You know, one of the statistics that for me is is really like like really represents this it, it, the the level of inequality is the fact that the twenty six richest people in the world own the same amount of wealth as the poorest three point eight billion. 
So 26 people, that, uh, it, you know, people, 26 people could fit in my two bedroom flat and they own the same wealth as half of the rest of the human race. And you've got to ask yourself, is that, is that amount of inequality okay? And it just isn't. And so I suppose in my mind, there there will always be people that, you know, people earn more, people earn less. There'll be more skilled jobs. There'll be less skilled jobs. There'll be people work harder. People do, don't work so hard. So there'll be a, a differential in pay and that's fine, but not, not at those extremes. You've never floated the business or obviously never sold it. You're still the only shareholder, I believe. Um, why is that? Because I want to make a difference to the world. I mean, for me, I, I've, I've made a promise to say, I will never sell any of my shares in Zen till my dying day. So I will never earn one penny from those shares. And, and I'm really fine with that. Because I feel like if I was to, well, first of all, if I was to sell out, then Zen would just be part of the capitalist system that I'm trying to change. You know, it would just be part of a bigger entity doing the things that bigger entities have got a reputation for doing sometimes. By locking the shares away and saying, actually, even after my death, they're going to go into a trust or into a charity where we can continue the focus on people and the environment as the top priority. That's the only way I can do it. You know, I, I, the shares can't go anywhere else and continue focused, continue to be focused on those things that I think matter more than accumulating unnecessary amounts of wealth for a select few people. And the, I, think, I think the other thing that I've learned as I've, I've got older is, you know, what are the things that really make me happy? And of course you grow up in a society that tells you from a very early age that what makes you happy is more money. You know, you buy more stuff, you have more possessions, you have a bigger house, you have a nicer pair of shoes, you have, instead of one car, you have two cars. Of course, you're going to be happy. And I've done quite a lot of research in the science of this. And the reality is, is it's pretty much all a big con. And, and if I look at myself personally, I think, you know, what are the things that make me the most happy? And... One of the things that makes me the most happy is to go and spend a, a couple of hours in a climbing gym with my daughter, you know, and that costs like 15 quid or something like that. And no amount of money will make that experience any better than it is, like no amount. So I suppose what I've come to the conclusion is you can be, you can be happy with, with, without, you know, with little bits of money. You need some money but you don't need millions of pounds. Have you been approached by investment bankers and potential buyers in the past? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've had quite a lot of approaches. I still get them today with people that want to buy up businesses in the industry. There was a period actually where there was a lot of consolidation in the market. And I just, I, I told reception, I said, if anyone rings up and says this, this or this, just tell them I'm not interested. So yes, I, I still get approached today, but I'm I'm just not interested, and I'm I'm really I'm not interested for any amount of money because it's not about that. What is your plan when you do die? Is it is it a trust that you put the business into? So so this is you know this is a really big challenge, and in fact there's something in the press recently about the the guy who founded Patagonia. You know what does he do to try and protect 
the values that he's built in the business after he exits from the business. And, and one thing that came out of the Patagonia experience was within a capitalist system that's designed the way it is, it's actually pretty difficult. So again, I've, I've done a lot of research into this. What I've got in place today is something in my will that my shares will go into a trust. I've written a letter of wishes to the trustees that basically says, stick to the values, don't sell out. Um, so that's what's in place today. What I want to do, and, and I suppose the final goal, is to set up a charitable foundation, the Zen Foundation. So this is something I've been working on for the last couple of years. And um, the benefits of a charity are that with a trust, a trust in UK law is limited to 125 years, which is, you know, it's a long time. But actually with a charity, it can go on in perpetuity. And with a trust, a trust is ultimately for the benefit of the beneficiaries of that trust. And and who are they, in my mind, for Zen? I, you know, I don't want to give it to my family. It's not necessarily the staff, the customers. It's sort of for everyone. It's for everyone. It's for society, really. So there's, there's no specific set of beneficiaries. But with a charity, you've not got that issue. So, so my end goal is to establish this charity and um, for the shares to transfer into the charity. And that might happen either on my death, through my will, or it might happen in my lifetime so I can make sure that the trust is, is operating as I would like it to operate. So you would you would advise the government or however there needs to be some change somewhere in the system to make it easier for you to do and other founders to, to hand over the business in the way you want. Yeah, definitely, um, and I think the government has a has a place. However, I think this is going to be led by businesses rather than the government. So what I mean, one of my goals with the Zen Foundation is it's good to do it with Zen. Zen internet, but actually I want it to be a thing that will be of interest to other businesses. So other business founders, owners, of which I've spoken to a couple already, who who actually, yeah, you know, they might want to exit, but they want to act, exit whilst keeping the right values within the business. So I want it to be a, I, I suppose, a, imagine a bubble of new capitalism within which businesses can go in and, and stay in that bubble and, wi- and within which new businesses can found and grow, but again, within a system that is much more about the people and the environment rather than about money. And then what I want to do is to make some publicity about how I've gone about doing this. So my, my ultimate dream, I suppose, is that within the Zen Foundation, you know, more and more businesses come into the foundation and grow within the foundation. But then around the world, other people see how I've created this foundation and think, you know what, I could do a, I could do something like this. And then I can say, well, here's the, here's the recipe book for how you, you do it. You know, here's the charitable articles and here's the method, you know, here's all the legal, legal documents that I've had to go through. So if you want to do this, I, I'll give you as much help as possible. And I suppose my ultimate dream is that, that that model takes off and around the world, you know, hundreds or maybe even thousands of these charitable foundations set up and, and are a home for an increasing number of businesses. And, and, and you know, if that happens, then, you know, that, then that could change things in a big way. And I think if that, if that success became a reality, 
then the government would would hopefully see the benefits of it and then make it easier. They would start to put in place legislation that would make it easier and that would, would help businesses go down that route. So it's, it's a quite a long journey ahead. As a business, you, you have big ambitions at the moment. Um, you, your annual revenue, I think, is already above 100 million, but you've spoken about wanting the big four to become the big five and to really grow your market share. You've obviously stood back into the chairman role as a new management team in place to help you achieve that. So as as you you grow and try to reach those ambitions, how do you protect the values that you want to be at the heart of the company? By always working towards them. I mean, it, 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 you can never rest, I think, with reinforcing the values and, and, and actually evolving the the culture to align to those values all the time you know new people join zen every month and, and and so those new people need to understand you know what are we about how do we how do we operate you know what does it mean if we're people in environment first what does that mean in in my weekly meeting what does that mean when i'm interacting with this customer on the phone or or, or on a video call so it's something that we continually strive to reinforce within the business and I do think that after 27 years of doing this, it doesn't matter how big you are. If, if you are genuinely set on a particular purpose and a culture, then you can maintain that however big you get. You know, I smile because I, I think back over the years where people have said to me, you know what, Richard, when you get to 50 people, you're going to have to get, you know, a lot more corporate, you know, processes, procedures, red tape. And then it didn't happen. And then it was like, oh, when you get past 100 people, you know, the business needs to change. When you get past 200, when you get past 400, when you get past 500 people. And what I've what I've learned, uh, as I say, over 27 years is that all that's been is not been true. You know, you get to any size. If you want a particular purpose and culture and you work hard enough with your people to reinforce that culture, then that's the culture you're going to you're going to have. And I say on on the flip side, if your business is ultimately about maximizing return to shareholders, then you're going to incentivize your board, your executives and right throughout the organization with targets that build towards that goal. So, you know, actually, the the people are the same people, you know, uh, it, but they operate differently in those different systems. You're obviously from the area and it's one of the reasons why you believe in and committed to not selling is, is so that the investment that you have in the area is protected. It, it's less about the area and it's less about Rochdale. It, it's more about my desire to, to be a catalyst really to change capitalism because it's all very well sort of saying, you know, Hey, you know, I'm Richard Tang, some random guy who's got this vision for capitalism but people want proof. And I, and I think what I want to be able to do is say all that and say, well, but look at Zen. You know, we've been focusing on people in the environment for over a quarter of a century. We've grown every single year and we're a profitable business. We're, you know, we're over 100 million of revenue this year. We're going to have our most profitable year this year. So that proves that actually counterintuitively by focusing on people the environment focusing on doing the the right thing by people is a, a fantastic recipe 
for financial success. And it is counterintuitive because, you know, some, some people have asked me over the years, well, how do you balance that, you know, doing the right thing on the one hand with driving growth and profitability on the other hand? And they see, they see the two as mutually exclusive, which is, which is bizarre, really, whereas what I see is they reinforce each other. And it sort of makes sense. You know, I was liken us to that backstreet garage in, you know, in Rochdale. They never advertise. They just do a great job fixing your old car. They charge you a reasonable amount. And you're like, well, brilliant. You know, I'm just going to carry on using them. I'm not going to take them to the dealer because it's much more expensive. I'm going to tell my friends, going to tell my family. And they have loads of business just because they're doing a great job. Really, if I look over the years of Zen... That's been our primary driver of growth. We've just done a brilliant job, our very best job for our people, for our customers. Um, and so our customers are loyal. They stay with us. And hopefully, you know, you, you'll, you'll tell your colleagues, your friends that, OK, I'm paying a little bit more for Zen, but it's worth it. You know, it's the best service. Um, and if I need support, I've got it there. Has this approach meant that you've grown slower than you might have given you, you don't advertise and you don't have sort of aggressive sales bonuses for staff? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if you look at our growth over the years, I mean, the, the period in the 2000s was different. So there was that period where our turnover was was doubling every year. But our growth over the last 10 years, turnover wise, has probably been average six, seven percent. It's a little bit higher in the last so three, maybe three or four years, near a 10%. But we haven't seen that meteoric growth. And it's been um, organic growth. And the other thing we've not done is is we've not grown at all through acquisition. And of course, many of our competitors over the years have grown through acquisition. Um, Talk Talk in particular have, have acquired huge numbers of businesses over the years, which, you know, is it, fine as a business model and grows the business more quickly but it's just not been a route that we've taken and, and that you know that's been fine i suppose for me i, I always want to max you know i am ambitious so i want to i want zen to maximize its opportunity and i do want the big four to be the big five i do want zen to be one of the big internet providers in the uk but i'm not in some mad rush to get there i'll get there as quickly as we can get there while sticking to the values. And I feel that that's what we've done up to present day. Have you ever been tempted and are you tempted now to sort of bend those values a little bit to be more aggressive or to see how fast you can grow? I, I think that, um, no, <laughs> no. I think the, the, the longer I do this, the more I am adamant that we need to stick to the values. You know, in, in the past, if there's been times where we've sort of, we, we've deviated a bit from the path. We've always come back and said, you know what? That's not what Zen's about. We're about um, sticking to our values. And really, you, you know, the, the best example in recent times is a few years ago, we came up with the lifetime price guarantee on our broadband. So, so about half of our broadband customers have a lifetime price guarantee. And what we said to them is, is we said, as long as you stay on that product, then your price will never increase so whether you're in contract whether you're out of contract whether it's 10 years down the line we're never going to put your price up and of course those were in the days before runaway inflation <laughs> hit us so we had a debate at Zen. we were like what are we going to do you know we made this promise to our customers but inflation was like next to nothing back then and you know and inflation's really gone up gone up so 
So can we, you know, can we even fund this? Or should we be breaking our promise because the situation's changed? And we were like, no, you know, we made a promise. Okay, like the business is, is not failing. The business is profitable. So we can afford to stick to our promise and sticking to the promise is more important than boosting our profits. But that's a, that's a decision that I think few businesses might have made. But yeah, that's really important to me personally, though. I like to think of myself as a man of my word. And if I promise some, something to an individual, to our customers, then I will uh, come hell or high water. I, I'll stick to that promise. Am I right in thinking that one of your um, leadership influences is, is the King of Bhutan? It, the King of Bhutan was certainly the person and the catalyst behind our happiness objectives because of his, I suppose, dismissal of the world's chasing of GDP growth. You know, so he looked at the world, all the all the Western economies chasing GDP growth as a measure of their economic success. And he said, you know what? That's less important to me and the people of Bhutan. What's important is how happy are we as a nation? So he, he coined this term GNH, gross national happiness. And he said, for me, I want our, the well-being of our society to be the top priority. And and I was in Bhutan on a paragliding trip in 2008, learning about this culture. And I thought, that's it. You know, that crystallized, I suppose, quite a few years of thought about Zen was about, about what Zen was about. And I thought, I thought, yeah, happy staff, happy customers, happy suppliers. So that's where, that's where that came from, and that's stuck now since two thousand and eight to present day. And as I said earlier, focusing on the happiness of staff, customers, and suppliers has resulted in Zen growing and being financially successful since two thousand and eight to now. So fourteen years that we've had those objectives and that purpose. Do you think we measure a lot of success the wrong way, whether it's companies and profits or the economy and GDP, which you touched on there? Are those metrics wrong for the modern world? Yes, they really are wrong. And particularly because they tend to be the the metric that matters most. And look, growth and profitability, they do matter. But in the capitalist system as it is today, they matter most. So it's all about hitting the next quarterly number or the next annual number. That's the top priority. And so, of course, executives and salespeople all get incentivized with these huge bonuses to hit these milestones. And GDP growth as well. You know, if you go and talk to the Bank of England, the Bank of England will say GDP growth is good and GDP shrinking is bad. It's recession, you know, really bad. But even GDP growth, it's just not as straightforward as that because two thirds of GDP is household spending. So you imagine a situation where the world's GDP or the UK's GDP just continues to go up and to the right, just continues to grow year after year. What that means is every year households are spending more and more and more and more. So they're consuming more and more and more of the Earth's resources. Now, wind back maybe, I don't know, 50, 100 years when the Earth seemingly had unlimited resources, that's fine. But now we know that the Earth has not got unlimited 
resources and our consumption of the Earth's resources is having a catastrophic impact on the environment and on the climate. So you sort of think, okay, if you take this Bank of England view that the more GDP grows, you know, that's a big element of happiness. And look, they do acknowledge that happiness has many dimensions, but GDP growth is a big part of them. Are we all going to be happy in 50, 100 years time with GDP through the roof, but we're all sitting in a desert? Everything's died off. You know, all our biodiversity, it's all gone. You know, we're not going to be very happy. We'll have a stack of money, but we'll have nothing to buy because there'll just be sand everywhere. So I think, I think that, that's an illustration of where I suppose you know, people have looked at things historically and quality of life and some measures, and they've just extrapolated without limit, assuming the earth can continue to supply us with all these resources that it, it, it really can't. So yeah, back to your question, we're measuring a lot of the really the wrong things, not just from the point of view of big business and the way capitalism works, from the point of view of our economies, our governments, we're looking at a lot of the wrong things. And, and look, we've not got very much time to do something about it. You've been listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. If you want to listen to and read bonus content from this episode, including Richard Tang's thoughts on his biggest regrets as a founder and the pieces of advice he would give to others starting up a business, then please sign up to our sister publication, Off to Lunch, on Substack. There, you can find bonus content to the podcast, but also business news and analysis throughout the week. You can sign up at offtolunch.substack.com.